You're listening to a live recording from Westside Church in Bend, Oregon. Thanks for joining us. Hello, friends in the room and friends online. I'm so excited that you're here and I'm here and spring is here. And I feel like we have a spring problem in America right now. There's this problem because we're desperate for it. I've never, I've never known us collectively to be so desperate for a change of season and new life and new hope, but we're also afraid to believe for it. There is a certain kind of fog, I think, in our streets right now. And it's this fog of sort of this hopeless worry about what's coming next. Have you felt it out there? Is it just me? Is, I live in between Bend and Portland. I mean, that would be Detroit, but I actually live in Portland sometimes and Bend sometimes. And in both cities, I feel the same thing, this idea that we don't really know what's coming next. And somehow we lost our underpinnings of what we thought was going to last forever and what we thought we could count on. And now we can't count on it anymore. And what I think we need is resurrection. I think we need as people, as followers of Jesus and of people of the resurrection, it is, it's on us to live out resurrection in our streets and in our homes. And in a few weeks, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to say he is risen. He is risen indeed. Um, because resurrection is everywhere. And it's exciting. And it's wonderful to see. But the downside of resurrection is that in order to experience it, what has to happen? Something has to die. And death is not our favorite thing. It's not my favorite thing to preach about. It's not our favorite thing to talk about. But it's real. We've seen it more in our world this last year than ever before. I think, though, in order to experience resurrection, something has to die. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at a story. And it is of death and life, life and death. This story encompasses all the emotions of it. It encompasses all the miracles of it. It encompasses all the human raw, um, the, the hopelessness. It's all the things. And the story starts like this. At this time, a man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Mary, whose brother Lazarus was sick, was to anoint the Lord with perfume and wipe his feet with her hair. Let's stop just a minute there because this is a phenomenal little place in the story. John, the, the writer, the, the beloved disciple, writes predominantly in his gospel, he writes kind of buckshot, kind of scattered. He's not, he didn't just sit down and write an orderly story like Luke did. And so it kind of bounces back and forth. And so here we have to remember that John is writing to people who are contemporary to these people. I mean, they know the people that he's talking about. And so John wants to parenthetically explain who it is he's about to tell you about. And so in order to explain to you who Lazarus is, he says Lazarus is the brother of Mary. But the problem with Mary is that there were lots of Marys in that day. It was a really popular name. There are four in the New Testament. And so he wants to explain to us who this Mary is. And he tells us something that he pulls a, a story out of chapter 12 that we haven't even run into yet in the chronology of the Gospel of John. So he jumps ahead and he pulls out a story and he says, this is the same Mary who anointed Jesus' feet with oil and, and dried them with her hair, that Mary. Mary is so known for her act of worship that John describes her that way, knowing the people he's writing to will get it. That's how famous she is 
for this act of worship. In fact, Mary is so famous for this act of worship that this is how John explains who Lazarus is. And spoiler, Lazarus is about to get resurrected from the dead. Still, this act of worship is the defining thing. This is what everything is judged by. In fact, the, the village that Mary lives in is called Bethany, which means house of praise. Eventually, the whole town is named after her. That's just a cul-de-sac comment about man. When we worship, I think it's so powerful. When we worship, I think we don't understand all the things that are happening in realms we can't see. This is an emotional week but it's an important one. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Isn't it funny? John felt he needed to explain that to us because of what he's about to say. I just want you to know up front, he loved them. He did. He was in the game with them, you guys. But on hearing that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two days. And then he said to the disciples, let us go back to Judea. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already spent four days in the tomb. So I've always identified in this story with Mary and Martha. I actually, I preached on this very scripture uh, about two weeks after we found out my husband was dying. And this story has been really dear to me because I see myself as the one who has literally laid at his feet and said, the one you love is very sick and there is nothing I can do about it except ask you to love him in the way that I want you to. And so I've always seen myself as that. Maybe you have too. Maybe you've been in that position where you've begged God to resurrect someone. But this week as I've been reading this, I've realized I'm Lazarus. I'm the one who's dead. I'm the one whose dreams die and hope dies. I'm the one who's the dead man walking. And so are you. It's love that sent Jesus to Lazarus, but it's also love that made him wait. Because that was for us. That was so that we could see that Jesus didn't just come to heal the sick. He came to raise the dead. So we could see it and smell it and imagine the death that hung around that house like an old gray coat that you can't shake off and you can't shake out. Jesus wanted us to see that he didn't just have the power over sickness, but the power over life and death because death gets on all of us. Regardless of money in the bank or stars on your achievement chart, death is our default mode. We're born dying. We're stuck in the quicksand of sin and we don't have the power to pull ourselves out. And there are just lots of theological takes right now on sin and death. And I don't really want to address any of the ones I don't agree with because that's not fun. What I do want to do though is speak to what I do believe, what the right theology of sin and death is. And it's that Jesus doesn't come to save us from the hospital. Jesus comes to save us from the morgue. Jesus comes to raise us to new life because we are without him as good as dead. But our dead doesn't look like Lazarus' dead looked. That was really obvious. 
that was really easy to spot. He's wrapped up in grave clothes. He's mummified. He's been in the tomb four days. He stinks. It's funny that the Bible includes all these details about that story. I love how John writes all these details about that story to bring us into this picture to understand this is how his death looked, but this is not usually how our death looks. Our death looks different than this. Our death shows up as an underlying hopelessness or a frantic need to fix ourselves and fill ourselves. It shows up as a chronic discontent or a lack of peace and courage. It shows up as an inability to ever really feel truly and fully loved. Death comes to us in the form of worry that God won't actually provide or that we somehow haven't been good enough to earn our way into heaven. I had a relative recently, she lived a brilliant life and loved Jesus all her life. And for whatever reason, in the last week of her life, she started to doubt, have I done enough? Have I been enough? And the answer to that question is always yes. Yeah, you were born enough for Jesus to love. Death shows up. Proverbs says death shows up in our words. If you, if you want to know where the areas of death are in your life, pay attention to what you, what you say. Um, the way we speak to and about each other, the way we speak to and about our world. First Corinthians says that death shows up when we use another person for sex without realizing that they are made in the image of God and they have an innate sacred holiness. We can sometimes see death spots in other people, but the same things in us, we just call oh, that something I really need to work on. That's something I really need to fix. That I need to get a book about that. There's just so many self-help experts out there. So many people who will explain to you how you can work around your brokenness by hiding it away. I told you I live in Portland uh, half, half of the time. And um, the, I don't know if you know, but Portland has a homeless problem. And we love downtown. My husband and I, we love to date downtown. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful city with the river running through it. But right now, the streets are lined with homeless tents. And, and, and it's a mess. It's a real eyesore. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't feel clean or safe. It feels yucky. And we walk through that play and we kind of avoid downtown now. And everyone is screaming about it. You know, Portland has to do something about this homeless problem. I've never walked by a homeless person that doesn't have some level of physical or mental unrest, unwellness. And so, yeah, we could, we, we need to figure out a, pro, a solution to the problem. Sure. But, but we could just send them to another city but then the problem is patched up and gone from where we can see it. But the problem still exists in humanity, in the fabric, in the core of who we are as a world. That problem is still there. That's still our death that we're living with. And so that's what we do, I think, as humans, is we say, I'm going to buy a book and fix this thing. I'm going to patch it up. Or I'm at least going to hide it away from the watching world. I don't want it to stink out there where people can smell it. And, and really, that theology is always going to dead end for us. It's always going to lead us to hopelessness and despair. It's going to lead us to a place at the end of our life where we're wondering if we patched up enough, if we fixed enough, if we did enough to earn his favor. Paul talks a lot about it too. He doesn't talk about the human condition like it's fixable. He doesn't say, 
you're trying to find yourself or you're trying, you're still in process or you, you were discovering your truth. He says this in Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you previously walked according to this worldly age, according to the ruler of the atmospheric domain. That's a kind of woo-woo sentence. That's a sort of, you know, Avenger superhero crazy. There's a villain out there. There's a ruler of our atmospheric domain. Yep. And whenever we decide that I can fix my own death, we discount the presence of evil in our world that is constantly trying to get the greater portion of our lives. There is a bad guy you were dead. Why? Because there's a bad guy. Because we have an enemy and he is easy to follow since his ways permeate our culture to such a degree that we don't realize we've been inhaling the smoke until we're filled with cancer. Often without even realizing it, we conform to an easy, evil way. And I cannot get over the power of these three words. You were dead. You were dead. But like every good superhero story, there's a game-changing, life-winning sentence on the way. And it starts with two words. And when you put these two words together in the Bible, anytime, really anytime in your life, you put these two words up next to each other, you're going to see a game-changing reversal. Something's about to go down. So you were dead. That's the bad news. But God... But God, who is abundant in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us, what word? Alive. But God made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. By grace, you were saved. Paul never backs off from this thing of like, you, yeah, you were the dead guy. He doesn't try to sugarcoat it. He doesn't try to paint it differently. He just says, this was your condition, but now you can be alive. This is good news. This is a miracle. We were dead and now we're not. We were toe-tagged in the morgue and now we're dancing in the streets. Or at least we ought to be. Because look at the rest of the story. Ephesians 2, 6. He also raised us up with him and sealed us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness to us through Christ Jesus. Why would I ever want to pack away my little homeless tent or my little shelter or my grave clothes? Why would I ever want to hide from the God who comes to bring grace and life and gifts to me in my tomb? I think we so are looking for just the bare minimum in terms of life. But Jesus didn't just use chest compressions to jumpstart our heart. He, he comes with grace and gifts to jumpstart our lives, to get us really, truly, absolutely living. E.E. E. Cummings, one of my favorite poets, especially in the spring, I love to read Cummings, said, unbeing dead isn't being alive. I read an article this week about the ability of modern medicine to keep someone alive or keep a heart beating, even though that person is clinically dead. They really do feel like they could do it on many people indefinitely, keep a heart just beating, even though no life is there. And that sounds astounding to me in physical, medical technology, but I think we've been doing it spiritually for centuries. We can just keep you going to church and call that life. Keep you paying your tithe and call that life. 
keep you going to the small group and call that life. But to actually encounter Jesus in the tomb means something has to die. Unless the seed falls and dies, it cannot bear fruit. It cannot come to life. There is no life without death. And that's why a refusal to acknowledge our own condition will always keep us from getting to the next place that we want to go. It's always going to be bad for us. So beware of any gospel that starts with anything other than you were dead. We don't get to keep the life of his story while denying the death in our own. We can't. And there are lots of, there are lots of kind of armchair philosophers out there right now who are preaching a, a, a pseudo gospel that's because we haven't fully encountered the God who heals brokenness will create a world in which there is none. Because we haven't fully, maybe the church hasn't done a good job representing the God of all grace, will create a life in which you don't need grace. And beware of any gospel that tries to sell you that story. Because acknowledging our death means the opportunity to invite Jesus right into the tomb. To do what only he can do. To change everything. And it's beautiful. We don't ever want to make the grace of God essentially unnecessary. I... I wonder what you would pay this morning for a good defibrillator. What would that be worth to you? I don't know that I'd recognize one if I saw one. But if I was gasping for breath and clutching my chest, what would it be worth to me every last dime that I have? It would be worth all my savings and all my IRA money and my kids' inheritance and my house. Everything, I'd feel I'll start over, but at first I have to get alive. I have to be able to stay alive. What salvation is worth to you is however much you know you need it. We connect life to the, the amount that we feel dead. And so acknowledging today that I was dead, he is life, and that life is available to us is a big first step. And I believe that life is always available to us, but I think it's also always optional. We can always decide, I'd rather do this on my own. I'd rather do this my own way. I can receive the gift of resurrection, but I also have to commit to doing the work of resurrection It is a gift, but it is also a skill where I realize in my life, oh, I'm letting this thing, I'm I'm letting a dead spot in my life in terms of my giving or my joy or my grace or my mercy on people or my compassion. I'm, I'm letting death become a part of me. It's not death that will keep me from heaven, but it's death that will keep me from life right now, right here. And what even is discipleship? if not the process of going from death to fully, truly, vibrantly alive. Isn't that what we're aiming for? We want want to become all the way alive. Where does God's mercy need to flow then in order to jumpstart our lives, in order to resurrect us, so that that we can walk into the Easter season going, oh, I really do feel like I've been resurrected. How long did it take Lazarus to be resurrected? One word from Jesus. Just one word. So four areas I thought of, there are lots of them, but four areas I thought of that I want Jesus to resurrect in me as I move into a new season. The first thing is Jesus came to resurrect our courage because death always is on the prowl. 
It is always hard. It is always out there. And it's dark and it's scary. And so sin can feel like freedom, but it actually chains us to fear. And so in order to break free from the death that stalks in the dark places, we have to be willing to have courage to face our lives, to face our own condition, and to move forward with faith. Jesus also came to resurrect our hope. Our hope can be invested in so, so many things, in money, in government, in relationships. We can invest our hope in lots of places, and we don't really realize we've invested it in other places until those places are gone or shaken. And... I've never seen, actually, Christians collectively with so little hope. It's been so discouraging to me to look at comments and hear people talk in the grocery store about how everything's, we're lost, everything's done, we're sunk. There's no hope for the church in America. Of course there is. We serve the God of hope. We serve the God who's made of hope. If you've lost your hope in what God is doing in his church and in this country and in this world, you got to get to know the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it cannot be stopped because you lose a job or because you lose an election or because you lose a relationship. It cannot be stopped. And so anytime we lose something external that we've held on to really hard, It's an opportunity for us to discover where we can fully shift our weight. We can move our weight fully to the grace and hope of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to resurrect our hope. Jesus came to resurrect our dreams. In 2015, after my husband's funeral, we had a graveside service. There were only about 30 people there. And... um, at the end, my dad did a little, gave a little message, and then they lowered his casket into the ground, and then we, we didn't want to leave. We, we hadn't planned to stay, um, but we decided we didn't want to leave. And so we waited there for the guy to come and start filling in the grave, and it was kind of an awkward moment of silence where no one quite knew what to do. And my husband's family my husband was raised in, in Africa and they started singing a song in Swahili and I don't speak Swahili, but I recognized the tune immediately. And it was that old chorus. If the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he will quicken your mortal body. If that spirit dwells in you. And I stood there thinking, this is a stupid song to pick as the dirt went in on my husband's casket and on my marriage and on my dreams and on my life and on my future. I listened to that song and I realized Steve is realizing his greatest dreams right now, dreams he never even bothered to imagine right now. Steve is experiencing the fullness of resurrection power right now. So that song was for me. That song was a prophetic promise, I think, reaching out of heaven and into my life and saying, if this same spirit dwells in you, you're about to see some dreams come true. You're about to see Jesus step into your tomb and raise your dreams from the dead. And all I can say is he has done it. He has done it with every single one because he is the God of resurrected dreams. Jesus came to resurrect our willingness to love the way he loves. How does Jesus love? 
I've been reading Psalm 139, and the other day it stopped me in my tracks because I got to verse 17, and it says, How precious and vast and weighty are your thoughts toward me. And I was just looking at it thinking, precious, vast, weighty. One translation says he is always thinking of you, constantly thinking of you. And I thought that sounds obsessive. That sounds kind of crazy. And I recognize it because that is me when I am thinking about my kids or my husband. But in the moments I think about them obsessively, when my thoughts are vast and weighty, it's because I'm fearful about something. It's because I'm worried about them. It's because I want them to make different decisions or I want something to go well for them or I'm worried about a doctor visit or I'm worried about something in their life. And I thought, what would it be like to be God who thinks about his children obsessively but never worries What is it like to live in love with no fear? Like if God is always thinking about me with faith, not because he knows I'm going to do it, he he certainly knows I'm going to screw up. So how is he thinking of me with faith? Because he knows what he's going to do. He knows how he's going to work those things together. He knows that the school of hard knocks is not going to kill me. He knows that losing some dreams is not going to kill me because he's on the job. And so he's always thinking about me with faith toward what's coming, toward what's good, toward what's true and beautiful and perfect. He's always thinking about us in love with faith. What if we can love each other like that? What if I could love you without worrying about whether or not you're doing it right? What if I could just love you without worrying that I'm going to lose you or that love is so risky or what if we have conflict and it doesn't work out? What if I could love you trusting not me and not you, but trusting God to resurrect any death in your life because that's what he's built for. That's what he came to do. What if I could love like that? Would that not change the world? Would that not change marriages and parenting relationships and coworkers? And I mean, I just feel like Jesus came to resurrect and change the way we love. He came to give us courage to love real and true and strong with each other and with him. We'll hear the rest of the Lazarus story over the next few weeks. And it's thrilling and exciting and it ends so well. But for today, we're just here in the death place, and I'm not sorry about it. I'm not, I'm, I don't, this is it. This is the waiting place. Today, let's just acknowledge our condition. So then we can truly value the gift being offered on the other side of resurrection. Jesus, we just love you. We love you, beautiful Dr. Jesus. The way you came to change us and bring us to new life. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would even now walk the aisles in this room and walk the living rooms and the coffee shops and the places where people are listening to your word. And I ask that you would show us, do a little scan on our life. Look for any areas that are hidden away that are murky and sad and tired and maybe even dying. And God, would you breathe life into us today 
Would you give us courage to open the door to the tomb and let you in? Would you give us courage to see ourselves as we really are? And would you give us courage to believe in the ultimate amazing life that you've come to offer? Life, life, life. We give you praise, we give you glory, and we thank you because you're real and true and good to us. In your name we pray, amen.